3: Australia learned the lesson not to fall for the language of the reset, not resetting the relationship or putting the relationship sort of above everything. I think that's a classic mistake that's often been made about uh, dealing with China. It's, it's a mistake because it, it puts the, the onus then
4: on not offending China. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College.
5: Okay, um, good good evening, everyone. I think we'll get uh, started now. Um, Welcome to the Australian National University on behalf of the National Security College here. My name is Carolyn Bull and I'm the uh, deputy head of the NSC and will be your MC for this evening. Uh, I will start uh, with an acknowledgement of country, and I'm going to do that in the language of my mother's family, which is Gamilaroi from Northwest New South Wales. Yama Ningu Gulbiyai Maraniani Nanawal Nambri Winingalana. Dawun Nyani Nanawal, Nambri Winingalena. Wayama Niani Nanawal Nambri Winingalana. Hello to you all and welcome. We pay respects to the Nunnawal and Nambri ancestors. We pay respects to the Nunnawal and Nambri country. And we pay respects to Nunnawal and Nambri elders. So a quick introduction about Dr. Ewan Graham, who's sitting over there and will soon take the stage. Uh, For those of you who who haven't had the pleasure of meeting Ewan, he's a senior fellow at Singapore's International Institute for Strategic Studies, where he manages the Shangri-La Dialogue and leads uh, research on defence and security in Northeast Asia and the Western Pacific, amongst many other research projects. Dr Graham has also served as Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, Director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program, and as a research analyst with the UK government. He's widely published in international media on a broad range of Indo-Pacific security issues. One of Yuan's lesser-known achievements is that he actually helped teach me how to write. So on a personal note, it's a real pleasure to help launch Yuan's book tonight. I've had the privilege of working with Yuan over something like two decades now on many different countries and none more important, of course, than China. That, of course, is the subject of this Adelphi book, Australia's Security in China's Shadow. Now the author himself describes this book as a cautionary tale. It asks what lessons can be drawn from the turbulent Australia-China relationship and what it is that makes those lessons worthy of attention beyond Australian policy circles. It's a tale that Yuan tells with both academic rigor and policy finesse. It catalogues the heat and noise of recent bilateral tensions. But importantly, it situates those ups and downs in the enduring substantive tasks, substantive issues that divide Australia and China. And Dr. Graham asks in the book why fundamentally it is that those divisions exist. Ewan is to be congratulated on the way he answers that question by crafting an analytical framework that's both sophisticated and accessible, and that shows a really deep understanding of Australia. This, in my mind, makes this book a really unique resource for policy circles in Australia but also beyond Australia, for scholars of Australia-China relations and for readers who simply want to learn more about Australia itself. It's considered, it's balanced, it's reflective and it's deeply intellectual, just like its author. So I commend it very highly to you. Now I'd like to hand over to Richard Maud make some some remarks uh, before we move to a discussion with you and and, uh, Professor Metcalf. Um, As most of you I think would know, Richard is Executive Director of Policy and Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. He's had a distinguished, a very distinguished career in government, uh, including as head of the Indo-Pacific Group at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, as the lead author of the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, and as Director-General of the then Office of National Assessments. Now, one of Richard's lesser known achievements is that he also taught me how to write. So it's also a very great pleasure for me now to ask Richard to come and take the lectern to make some finely crafted remarks of his own.
2: Well, thank you so much, uh, Carolyn, and good evening uh, to you all. Uh, I too would like to begin by paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal and Nambri people, and pay my respects to elders past and present. It's a real delight, a pleasure to be here with you all and with Rory uh, and and Ewan to launch Ewan's book. And for a foreign policy wonk like me, uh, how could it not be a pleasure? As Caroline says, Ewan's book is timely and important. He's tackled such a consequential period In Australia's foreign policy, and more than that, a consequential period in our story as a nation, one in which the stakes have been very high indeed, socially, politically, economically and strategically. It's also a period that remains relatively understudied, perhaps because it's still so fresh, perhaps because the story rolls on. Now, it's sometimes suggested to me by critics of Australia's approach to China that Australia doesn't actually have a China strategy, that we don't have a coherent policy. Well, not surprisingly, I don't agree. And whatever you might think of them, I don't think you have to work too hard to find three core pillars, national resilience and sovereignty, the pursuit of a balance of influence or a strategic equilibrium, as Penny Wong calls it, in the Indo-Pacific that favours our interests. And thirdly, and especially from 2020, the ambition for an Australian defence force with much more firepower and reach. But I will concede that the journey to those three pillars has not always been straightforward, not without some missteps or its sharing of messiness and improvisation. And Ewan's book takes you on that journey, tracking through the issues gripping policy makers, foreign interference and influence, trade and economic coercion, investment, defence and the contest in the Indo-Pacific. I did a lot of nodding as I read through the book and I also and really thank you for this, Ewan, relived a few hair-raising moments. And in the book, Ewan imagines Australia as a resilient, if somewhat ruffled canary emerging from the coal mine of Australia of China policy. It's a nice metaphor, not just because it makes the reader smile, but because it was probably how many of us looked at the time. And no doubt those at the coalface often still do. I will leave the ideas in the book mostly to Rory and Ewan. I might say in passing, though, that I'm less hard on governments past and present and on Australian businesses when it comes to Yuan's concern about open-ended economic engagement with China. I think that was rational, a rational choice at the time, and even with hindsight, And of course, Ewan himself does acknowledge that Australia has benefited greatly from that economic relationship, and still does. Just ask the current Treasurer. Moreover, there's still no appetite for significant economic decoupling from China, a point that even the Biden administration has been at pains to make recently. That said, Ewan is absolutely right to say that Australia's experience must be cautionary, the risks of of investing in China, of manufacturing in China and of trading with China seem to me to rise almost by the day. And whatever we might think about decoupling, China has its own decoupling agenda. If you only have time uh, to dip into Ewan's book, I particularly encourage you to read his thoughtful last chapter, where he explores the lessons that other countries might learn from Australia's experience. And one of Ewan's most insightful observations is that there was nothing preordained about the turnaround in Australia's China policy. Indeed, one can tally up all the individual factors that pushed Australian governments into action and still wonder what particular combination made the difference. In his book, Ewan underlines the role of individuals and I agree, Prime Ministers and some of their advisers were pivotal decision makers. But in pondering this very question myself at points in my post-government life, I've also wondered about other harder-to-quantify variables. I wonder sometimes, for example, did national culture come into play here? As a nation and a people, we are pretty independent. We don't really like being told what to do by China or by America, as it happens. Early on in in his great history of the First World War, C.W. Bean reflects on the national character of Australia, and much of what he saw then has been reshaped and reshaped dramatically by decades of change, but some things still resonate. Bean describes a peculiar independence of character, and he said of Australians that they were unaccustomed to to commands, untempered by the suggestion of a request. He also goes on to say that Australia fought not just for Britain and empire, but in opposition to the principle that only the strong have rights. In opposition to the principle that only the strong have rights. Well, sometimes, as the French say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I said at the top of these, these remarks that the story rolls on, and so it does. Bilateral relations are somewhat better, the regional dynamic somewhat worse, risks accumulate. In my view, the government has sought to stabilise with China without any delusions as to the nature of the party state or the enduring structural differences that now exist between China and the West. And that is a healthy mindset. Stabilisation serves our national interests, but it brings some hazards. For governments, sustaining such a hard wel- uh, one outcome is obviously attractive. And equally obviously, China sees leverage in this. It is reasonable for Australia to pick our fights. Not everything China does requires an equal response. Still, while the evolution of China policy in recent years was far from smooth, we did at least learn that we could stop worrying about what China might do to us and get on with the task of protecting national interests. That was a liberating moment. Perhaps the most important of all the lessons from this tumultuous period, as Yuan says as he closes his book, "We live in China's shadow, but shadows are often bigger than the objects that cast them." So Yuan, congratulations on your book. It's a terrific read. I look forward to the discussion to come. And now I invite Rory and Yuan to lead. Uh, for, well, for Rory to lead a discussion with Yuan. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Richard, and um, thanks also to uh, my deputy, uh, Dr. Carolyn Bull, for your uh, fantastic introduction there. And I hadn't quite a, quite uh, appreciated that uh, I think both you um, and Richard played such a pivotal role in ensuring that the the quality of uh, briefing and uh, uh, other work at the National Security College is of its um, exemplary standards. So thank you. Um, look, let's. Go to a conversation with you about the book, and shortly I will be very keen to invite uh, questions from you from our audience. But I want to kick off with uh, in conversation, uh, fireside chat without the the fire. Um, congratulations on the book, just to reinforce uh, that because it, it really is uh, it, it really is a very uh, useful. And elegant publication here it is, and of course we since we don't have uh, a splendid pile of copies outside, we do have a QR code I think that can help you track it down and buy it um, it's hot property um, it will find its way onto reading lists at the national security college i I, I suspect mm-hmm. so um I found your book uh robust without being shrill, balanced without being fence sitting uh, and you know incredibly timely it would be good to hear from you though you and why did you write it and who was your audience?
3: Well, um, thank you very much, Rory. Thank you. Um, also to the national security college for providing a, a venue and to the ANU, my old, uh, university from, from, from years back, um, for Richard, for his extremely kind and, and thoughtful, uh, introduction and for Carolyn for opening things up. Uh, I feel like many paths in my own personal life are converging, uh, here tonight. Uh, so I, there's a conceit about me writing this. I, I have to uh, fess up. I'm not an Australian. So um, it's a rather presumptuous premise uh, from the starting point because this book is probably more about Australia than it is about China, although it is about both. Uh, but I wrote this as someone who has spent a lot of time here and Australia is my home and will be my future home. Uh, and there's a lot that's invested in that and I was here during the time when I think a lot of these things were bubbling up, particularly the policy change that identify around 2016, 2017, uh, when I uh, followed in your footsteps uh, in the Lowy Institute uh, and sort of lived and breathed that at a very um, uh, formulative period in, uh, in, in the relationship. But when I actually uh, came to writing it, I wrote it in, in Singapore, where I've been for the last three years. and. Um, another conceit, if you like, because I'm not really detached from this. I've been very much in the debate, but if Singapore offered me a bit of distance just to sort of get some perspective on this uh, relationship and bring it up to a a level where uh, others could look at it, because I think something that's often lost in Australia is um, that it's Australia's significance as as an exemplar uh, in this relationship. A lot of the lessons that were, I think, uh, uh, won very hard uh, here. And sometimes Australia was, as I've said in the book, out ahead of even its closest allies in the hard decisions that it took, for example, around the 5G decision in, in 2018. And Australia is not, a, of course, a, a perfect model. It's unique and it has its own circumstances, which are uh, specific to its its national interest and, and national culture. Um, but I think there's enough there to be relevant to to other countries, especially the the other democracies, but not exclusively the democracies, because a lot of countries are facing very similar sets of of pressures. Uh, and I think maybe that's that's a feedback to the Australian audience that there is um, relevance in in this national story that goes beyond purely an account of the bilateral relationship. So
0: that's what I was trying to pitch it at uh, at, a, at a broader international level. And so we'll come back to that international context a little later on, because it'll be interesting also to see how you read international perceptions of the experience Australia's had with China over the last seven or eight years. But firstly, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you see the regional and global context, because I think one of the um, the frustrations some of us have when we engage with the Australia-China debate on security and more widely is the um, You know, the perception that some have have that this is all about the Australia China relationship. If only settings can be adjusted or changed in the Australia China relationship, then somehow the frictions will disappear, the strategic tensions will go away, and we can all live happily ever after. Of course, the Australia China relationship is in a wider regional and global context and is in the context of how. China has been uh, developing and using its um, its power and influence. So I'd be interested to know your own thoughts about what that larger context is and where you think the Australia-China story fits in. Well, there is a very
3: obvious asymmetry to the relationship. Uh, Australia is a country of 25, 26 million people. China is over a billion people. So uh, clearly there is a... Uh, you know, a, a scale mismatch. Um, but we live in a system of, uh, sovereign equality. And, uh, that is a very important principle, which I think Australia has been, uh, you know, rightly, uh, defending, but it can't defend in isolation. And when I say defend, I don't mean just in the military sense, although that, that is, uh, clearly there in the broad strategy, but, uh, um, it's really about, uh, making a calculated decision to look um, up and out into the region and to uh, forge those um, relationships and in doing so make those comparative connections between what Australia has uh, undergone in its experience. Uh, And we see this playing out in the economic domain uh, through uh, debates around supply chains and economic uh, resilience. Um, There is an obvious thread that the symmetry is much closer between democratic systems, but as I said um, a moment ago, not exclusively, uh, because there is a balance of power equation here. Uh, and in the um, balance of power equation, uh, it has to run, I think, through a region that where, um, frankly, Australia doesn't have the luxury of, of picking uh, only democratic partners. It has to be pragmatic in how it goes about that. And that's, uh, of course, a much longer-running theme of Australian uh, foreign policy. I think that's been uh, grasped uh, if I can relate that to a recent policy decision in the defence strategic review I thought it was very significant in the framing of that defence strategic review it puts military power in a broader context of statecraft and the the, the need to uh, resource the diplomatic capacity of Australia to forge those relationships uh, is very much a challenge um because frankly Um, If China is exerting pressure through whatever means, what it wants is to have that other partner feeling that it is cornered, outnumbered, and must succumb to terms rather than uh, face a a price. Uh, And the best counter to that is to to have a collective response. And I think the collective framework, be it in the defense space, the economic space, uh, or even domestically, there is also a broader uh, agenda to um, to be had that even countries looking after their own uh, sovereignty against uh, political interference can draw useful lessons from the framework, from examples of rolling out legislation and other. Singapore, which of course politically rather different from Australia, also introduced counter-interference legislation after Australia. Now, it's not an exact like-for-like, like, but I think there was a uh, – you know a, a curious eye that was cast over the Australian experience. It's a little rough on Australia because being first uh, there's a first mover advantage, there's also a first mover disadvantage in this case. Mm-hmm. I think Australia bore a lot of the uh, brunt for that, uh, and there was a I think a, certainly a phase in which uh, those in the region were looking at Australia and rather fearful that being associated with the pariah in China's eyes would attract some of that uh, punishment on their heads. And my conclusion in the economic chapter is that economic coercion was not so much coercion to force a policy change in Australia as
0: economic punishment to make a point to the the wider region. So we might build on that because, again, as well as that, um, I think, misperception in the Australian debate that this is all about the bilateral story, uh, there's also an argument that's made that if only Australia, an argument that's made internally in parts of the debate, uh, if only Australia could be more like Asia, uh, you know, verily that's more like Japan, more like Singapore, more like whoever, in the way in which it um, accepts and quietly manages the China relationship, we would all be much happier. And while there may be <coughs> some truth to parts of that argument, it seems to miss the diversity of views that there are in asia so how do you think the the australia china uh, tensions the really tough reality check that we've been through and maybe are still going through how is that being read in the region is there a regional view are there different national views uh are what we hear publicly uh are the points we hear publicly at at odds with what's thought privately what's your um bird's eye view from singapore um well, as you know
3: better than anyone, Rory, the Indo-Pacific is a very diverse set of, uh, of, of countries. So there is certainly a, a spectrum of, of opinion on that. Um, uh, and of course, China is at one ex- extreme of that uh, opinion in, in taking, a, um, if you like, a rather uh, dim view of, of Australia's willingness to stand up for its own uh, interests. Um, elsewhere, I think it's been, there's been a learning curve. Uh, and I don't want only to pick on Singapore because I've spent time there, but it does come to mind. But, um, the, uh, Singapore Minister of Defense recently paid Australia a compliment by saying that it was an Asian country, which I thought was quite significant in, uh, uh in, in that uh, context. Um, and that's in the context of Australia where it is on the China relationship. I think, um, although there is sometimes an aversion to Australia sticking its neck out, and um, sometimes is seen as being a bit noisy in the way that it goes about things. And I think looking back at the the previous government that made the bulk of these changes to the good, but I think it's also a fair criticism that there was a lack of discipline around strategic communications at times that I think resulted in some uh, head-scratching or or, uh, or puzzlement in in the region. Why are you doing that? Why are you bring um, the uh, uh, the ire down on on your on your heads? But I think there is also a, an appreciation that Australia is is different. That uh, uh, Australia doesn't have to behave like it's a nation country in Southeast Asia, uh, uh, notwithstanding the compliment that's recently been paid by the Singapore uh, government. Um, because uh you know it is, it is its own country and its own culture, and uh, sometimes Australia, I think, is expected to do things that in ways that um, that Southeast Asian countries in particular would not and uh, Australia it's not just about culture. Australia has distance to its advantage there in a way. Um, it is of the region, but it's it's also uh, distinct and i think that uh, because it's a very close ally of the united states and uh, it has you know a history of strong alignment with uh, uh, with the uk uh, and the us um, it is always going to see be seen as a bit of a lightning rod for the, uh, you know a western mindset if you like uh, but it shouldn't uh, feel unabashed abashed about uh, its status as a as a constitutional democracy uh and there is a certain messiness that comes about with the democratic process i think that uh, australia's learning curve uh, was messy at times uh, and that's to be expected uh, because you learn through trial and error uh and um australia was through the gate i think of a lot of these experiences ahead of of other countries so although it felt um, rather lonely in the in the freezer to use your 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 metaphor from your book rory uh the freezer was a crowded place increasingly
0: and it's interesting to note, <clears throat> I guess, you know, recent comments by the Indonesian um, president, for example, on AUKUS and the Quad that are a little bit <clears throat> more, if you like, um, understanding of Australia's position. Perhaps we might have anticipated the Quad summit coming up very soon. So we'll see where Japan and uh, India and the United States sit on these issues. It's also interesting to look beyond that view that um, the region is only interested in in Prosperity and, uh, uh, if you like, prosperity sometimes at the expense of, um, of sovereignty. What, what do you think? I think you're right to draw attention to the recent remarks of uh, President
3: uh, Widodo. I think it was a very significant uh, set of remarks uh, in the interview that was published where he said that uh, uh, AUKUS and the Quad could be partners of ASEAN. And uh, Indonesia, particularly the foreign ministry, um, but also Malaysia had taken initially a, a quite a cautious um, line towards AUKUS, uh in in particular. But I think it, it fits a, a pattern if you look at the region long enough. Uh, if something new comes in, uh, particularly something like AUKUS, which, for I think, for understandable reasons, could not be pre briefed, uh, it 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 dropped, dropped, and uh, there were obvious rep- repercussions to that. Um, with France, obviously, but, uh, but elsewhere in the region, a region that is um, used to being uh, based on the basis of consensus and, and pre-briefing, uh, and uh, that jarred, frankly. I think it jarred with a, with a lot of countries, but I think in particular Indonesia and, and Malaysia. And Indonesia uh, is, of course, uh, vitally important uh, because of its size and proximity to Australia. So that shows, I think, a classic pattern that that things do kind of bed in um and I think um the current government is to be congratulated for uh doing the pre-briefing that was necessary to bring along Southeast Asia uh on the defence strategic review. The fact that we haven't had similar statements that were the case after AUKUS uh shows I think that the, the broad direction is increasingly uh tolerated, if not positively accepted. And the other part of that Singaporean statement that I referred to recently also um, ventured that Australia had a positive role to play in in regional uh, security. But it goes beyond um, just uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, We look at Japan and and, uh, India. I think those are the two standout partners where there is a real confluence of threat perceptions and common interests. uh, And that, I think, is the underpinning of of the Quad uh, in essence with the United States, those, um, four, four countries, I think do form a, uh, uh, a common view and, and, uh, whether it's said, not publicly acknowledged or not, China is clearly the driver of a, of a lot of that. Um, and, um, I think that puts Australia's experience in, in a, uh, um, you know a regionally strategic light. but the lessons have also been drawn in in smaller European countries that have
0: also been feeling uh, although at greater distance, very pointed economic coercion in recent years. I'm glad you brought the the more global and European context into that. I mean even looking now at Canada's experience in in recent days, I think there's going to be all sorts of fascinating analogies and resonances and rhymes of Australia's experience from other countries in the years in the years to come. On the question of continuity, you mentioned the current government, and I'll ask you this question, and then open up to the um, to the floor to the group. Uh, your book takes us up really to what around midway through last year. I mean the early the early phases of the Labor government, uh, the Albanese government that was elected in May uh, twelve months ago. And I get the sense from reading your book that you anticipate uh, a high degree of continuity, particularly in the fundamentals and the policy settings. We've now had a little time pass. I mean, even if look, even if we look at the so-called stabilisation agenda in recent months, uh, the, the trade minister going to China, the foreign minister went um, last December. There's, um, there's anticipation and expectation of continued uh, easing of the economic pressure and coercion. And there's been this uh, really extraordinary discipline in the government's rhetoric. While, as you say, with AUKUS and the Defence Strategic Review you know there has been um, hardening and balancing. What's your sense about continuity and how um, how durable how durable is all of this? Well, it was a tricky
3: judgment to make
0: because uh, I was
3: constantly updating the the book as as writing it. I think in terms of effort, there are probably at least two two books worth that went into this. It was a a, a moving target. They all are, but this was some um, particularly fast moving target. And I had to make a judgment, uh, fairly soon after the, after the, uh, uh transition to the, the, the labor administration. I think that's broadly borne out. Uh, and I think it's for the very basic reason that the pendulum of the relationship, as I characterize it in the book, swung from economics to geopolitics. And I don't think it's going to swing back anytime soon. And that's a structural setting. Uh, Richard used structural in his uh, framing remarks, and I'd, I'd echo that. Um, and I think that uh, uh, whatever the tactical calibrations that have been introduced around strategic messaging from the current government that may be to the good, I don't think that uh, the broad tenor of the relationship is, is going to change. Um, and that's a rather gloomy judgment, because it's really a judgment about China's uh, future behavior at least while xi jinping is in in charge but i suspect it will probably go on beyond him uh, a hardening uh, and a um, a more um, uh, well i think assertive is uh, under underappreciates the 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 level of the challenge it it verges on aggressive too and i think that uh, um despite China's attempts to reset the relationship uh, not just with Australia but with other countries runs into its own internal contradictions uh, and then we see the wolf warrior which has somewhat been put back in in the cage suddenly breaking out over the over the top of it again uh, and I think that uh, there will be periods of tests ahead the transition to the new government is still fairly recent so we're not perhaps in a honeymoon period it's been um understandable that uh, i think that there was a an attempt to to uh recalibrate the relationship but australia learned the lesson not to fall for the language of the reset i think that was telling so stabilization is is a fair uh goal um but not resetting the relationship or putting the relationship sort of ab- above everything i think that's a classic mistake that's often been made about uh dealing with china And it puts really it's it's a mistake because it it puts the the onus then on not not offending China and that plays very much to the way that uh, uh, that the uh, Communist Party uses that fear of causing offence as a way of then uh, through um, a whole series, not necessarily a single decision point, but once that mindset about failure to uh, not wanting to cause offence becomes the dominant uh, theme. Uh, then um, you quickly find you're dancing to uh, Beijing's tune, and I think that that lesson uh, has been learned by Australia, and that's borne out in the uh, in the statements of uh, of the foreign minister uh, very uh, cogently, including her recent national uh, press club speech. But it's in the policy settings too. Um, there may be an area in which there is uh, uh, testing of that. So the Australia Taiwan relationship might be one area where I think there's been a particular caution. And I would just put it out there that there are ways in which uh, Australia can explore a relationship with Taiwan that doesn't run across the rubric of the diplomatic settings in in 1972 that does allow an economic relationship and other forms of engagement. Uh, But it may be that the caution about that currently overrides any sort of willingness to to go over the, the parapet. I think at the moment what australia wants is to get back to an economic level level setting because a lot of those coercive measures are still in place uh, and uh, there are two australian citizens who are still in detention in uh, in, in china uh, chen lei and yang hen chun so we shouldn't forget about about them either
5: we'll be right back
4: In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia.
0: Let's open up the conversation now to the audience. So, if you have a question for you, and please, there's a microphone doing the rounds, please get my attention. Uh, One question each, keep them reasonably short, please, and uh, please identify yourself. So, who would like to go first? Here's your chance. I'll be very disappointed if, uh, if I have to do all of the questioning, because I know that you have questions. So, please, we'll start here.
4: Uh thanks, Ewan. A really interesting talk. Um US I'm, state- I'm introduce yourself, please. Yeah, I'm Charlie. Uh work at DFAT. Views don't represent the government. Um <laughs> uh a US State Department Kremlinologist Dan Freed once said of the US of US policy towards Russia that Um, the golden rule should be never to sacrifice U.S. values or interests on the altar of good relations with Russia. What risk do you see um, for Australia in pursuing a stabilisation of its relationship with China that it might actually sacrifice some of its values or interests on the altar of good relations with China? Thanks, Charlie. It's
3: great to see you here. It's a it's a searching uh, and 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 relevant question. It partly comes down. I mean, America's announces itself as an exceptionalist state, but it's it's a big state that can afford to take positions. And while Australia is a a, a liberal uh, democracy, it goes back to that twenty five million people versus one billion people asymmetry. And what comes from Australia's long history as being seen as a, you know, a Western outpost that's been physically, uh, uh, you know, the prisoner of its own geography out in, uh, in, in uh, surrounded by uh, alien cultures and, and, and languages. And that has given rise to a, a tradition of pragmatism in the way that Australia has followed its its foreign policy. Pragmatism has served Australia uh, and it's understandable from the perspective of being precisely in that that that, um, that quandary as, as the sort of cultural uh, odd man out, if I can put it that way. Um, but there's a danger in, in that um, pragmatism that I think and, and I've tried to explore that in the history of of that period in the first decade of of the millennium where I think there was a wholesale grasping of the economic opportunity uh, and pragmatism that sort of uh, ran a little out of control, if you like, because um, I don't think there was an appreciation of the downsides about uh, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party's status as the ultimate end user of every transaction in China in a way that was not obvious in the 1990s when there was a still a, you know an active reform period underway in china um, that's maybe a, again it's presumptuous of me to say that, uh, but I think that uh, that for me is is the is the sort of that's the way I can try and f- frame it in the most um, persuasive Uh, and general way that's not really about any particular personality or institution, but it's the temptation to fall for pragmatism uh, over uh, values. And I think it's a tension that plays out in all countries, foreign policy, and Australia is no exception to that. Um, But um, if you're dealing with an authoritarian uh, uh, regime, um, then you can't divorce uh, politics from from the economic agenda. I think that's that was the, a very basic lesson about the economic coercion campaign. Hopefully, the lesson has been learned because we've been f- through that gate and the experiment was actually shown to have failed, I think, in, in, in terms of its ability to shift Australian um, fundamental policy uh, positions. Um, but humans are frail and they forget and they tend to look for the good times and uh, businesses tend to look for profits. But... Um, I'm slightly cautious about tarring business as being kind of cravenly, wanting to always explore the opportunities in China. I'm rethinking that a bit now since I wrote my book uh, because businesses are also learning organizations. And I think having seen that experience up, hand, up front of coercion, and I feel that in my interactions with business when I do consulting with them now, uh, that geopolitics which was previously seen as a kind of an irrelevance often now is seen as a as a as an operational risk uh and that is with with china in, in, in mind so i th- i think that um uh while policy government policy is the uh is the focus of the book the learning has to go much broader than that and if the foot comes off the policy pedal from government doesn't mean that the learning process necessarily stops. And I think that uh, um, pragmatism might actually work to the benefit of businesses if they see that these things, which are not inextricable from values, are also in their business interests.
0: Thanks, Ewan. Great question. And I, um, your reminder about the way businesses, I think the corporate sector really is learning in this space goes to the, I think, the theme of, um, you know, the concept of de-risking, which is now becoming so, uh, if you like, influential in the European debate. Uh, and I wonder if that's that's a paradigm that, that you can see the private sector moving towards on China. I wonder if you can just elaborate on that at all. I mean, the big difference is share of
3: trade. Um, no country in Europe comes close to the share of trade uh, that Australia has. as you know, pushing up towards 40% at, at, at times of, of, of uh, merchandising and, and goods to China. One <laughs> commodity
0: in particular. Uh,
3: and yes, within that. And that's also significant because it means it's not as broadly distributed throughout the economy as, as, as a lot of people um, assume. And um, it may not be s- set in stone <laughs> um, because uh, – so to speak, uh, I mean it's it's been a long running uh, trade to Australia's benefit, and and, and I accept uh, Richard's comment that uh, that um, you know it was in Australia's interest to pursue that when the opportunity was was there, and I think it probably will be pursued right up until the last moment when it when it can be trade is like that. Trade is not like investment; it's point to point, and uh, those transactions I think carry less. They have less need for trust. Than, uh, than, than, than investment so I think one important distinguishing feature is to separate investment out from uh, from uh, uh, f- you know from trade particularly trade in commodities where there's no IP attached um, there's no secret what's in what's in those red rocks in Europe um, again it shakes out differently I think we see an interesting kind of regional difference in Europe the northern European countries started being much more um, uh, risk averse um i think it you know the it, it it the scandinavian countries and eastern um european countries were very interesting as they are with russia uh corrective to the view that that policy necessarily comes always from france and germany first uh, the uk has been on an interesting and quite rapid in relative terms learning curve on on, on china um but it's far away and I think that's that's another uh, key difference. That um, threat um, from China will also be perceived differently from those who are very close to it. So, India and Vietnam will see China in different terms to Australia, however aligned the threat in, the threat perceptions are. And we should not forget that Australia has not always been seen as being you know the, at the champing at the bit of of the anti-china coalition there have been real worries from the indians and japanese others that australia has been the weak link within the uh, the quad or its or in its incipient uh, status in in the past um but i think the european uh, interest in in this part of the world uh, is um is growing it's not just through the question of de-risking uh on the economic uh, equation with china i think the hinge between uh, the link of European security and Indo-Pacific security, which is frequently asked, uh, is increasingly the Russia-China uh, relationship, uh, and that I think is um, it's an evolving one. I wouldn't characterize it as as an alliance, uh, but it does I think ominously bode to a a global level challenge, uh, and and not one that is seen through regional silos.
0: Let's take another question uh, from the group. Um I'll I might take a few actually. So I'll take this one here, but are there any others so that we can line them up? I'll take yours, sir. Uh any other questions from the group? Yeah. All right. we'll, we'll, we'll take yours first and then we'll see we'll we'll
6: keep moving. Yep. Yes. Uh, well, thanks a lot Lithuania's ambassador here in Australia. there is the goodest. Um well, you just mentioned you know northern European states and and China's policy to Russia. So Uh, you also have mentioned that Australia is only 20 million people and in uh, more than 20 million in China there is you know almost one and a half billion we in Lithuania 2.10 very small kid you know (laughs) in in the third and the fourth division or whatever we are playing Uh, but it would be very important what you have mentioned about Chinese relations with uh, Russia it's not it's not Chinese relations with Australia or the sense with in the Pacific state so We understand that uh, President Putin went to China, President uh, Xi went to Moscow. They have no line uh, partnership, strategic partnership. President Xi had a 12-point plan for peace in Ukraine. But uh, at the moment, we often hear that Russia is kind of a satellite state to China. Actually, it would be very interesting. uh, What would be your read on this uh, Chinese... uh, Strategic um, kind of a ideological game uh, with Ukraine with Russia is Russia still very equal to China at the moment, in, or maybe no? What do you think? Uh, if Xi's twelve action plan to for peace in Ukraine, do you think that that is uh, a reasonable plan, or maybe not? thanks
3: I'll try and be brief because i mean this is outside of the scope of, of, of my of my book but i i 'll take a a go at a, at answering it um, I think Ukraine is a geopolitical accelerant um the war in in, in Ukraine and um, we've seen an interesting evolution of china's position which initially looked uh, more equivocal uh, China has a vested interest in not uh, upsetting um, uh, territorial in- integrity, uh, and I think that we shouldn't dismiss that as as entirely uh, lip service. I think there was that that was borne out in the equivocal uh, reaction of of China early on in the war. But I think the longer it has gone on, certainly the signals from Xi's visit to Moscow were, were rather disturbing, including his parting comments to uh, to President. Putin about um, changes that have not been seen for the last 100 years. Uh, And in that, um, what I've tried to take the advantage whenever I have the opportunity to interface with with Chinese uh, visitors to Singapore from think tanks or from the government to be very careful about what they're entering into with Putin, because I think Putin's game is to draw China into that from a position of weakness perversely, that gives him leverage because China doesn't want to see Russia fail or they don't want to see Putin out of power. Uh, and I think that um, that's been a rather di- di- strange but uh, disturbing dynamic uh, to see uh, play out. Um, so I don't, I don't think China is uh, is in any sense a neutral um, arbiter. And I think Ukraine's caution about China's role in offering a peace plan is uh, is right.
4: Uh, please, your, your question. Uh, Dr Graham, look, obviously Australia lives in the shadow of one giant, China, but also lives in the shadow of another, the United States, which is, uh, how can I put it, due to domestic politics, perhaps less stable in its foreign policy than we've been used to. How does Australia steer a path between those two rocks? You know, it's Jason and the Argonaut again. I guess
0: before we answer, we've only got a few minutes to go. So, if there are any other questions in the audience, we'll take them now. Um, line them up. So, I'll take two more. Uh, your question, and then yours at the back, and we'll have to stop. So, thank you.
2: Thanks, Rory. Um, yeah, first, congrats on the on the book and, and sharing your time with us this evening. Um, um, you talked about the continuity of policy between the last government and this government. Um, i was just wondering, in that context, the the role of bipartisanship. Politically in Australia, did you find there's a lot of behind the scenes, active bipartisanship and briefings going on?
0: Great, bipartisanship and last question
4: uh, up at the back, please. Thanks. Uh, Peter from DFAT. Um, Increasingly, China seems to be advancing uh, normative ideological claims uh, through the GDI, the GSI and the GCI. Um, in our own foreign policy discourse, and you know our relations with countries in Southeast Asia, and we you know advocate pragmatism, not appealing too much to values, you know not beating them on the head about things like democracy, freedom of speech. How long is that actually tenable for if you have China, which is increasingly advancing an ideological argument rather than just a do business with us because it's good for you?
3: Um, so in order that they were asked. Um, Well, the rocks aren't equal. Uh, uh, I mean, the United States is Australia's uh, ally. And uh, as as Richard said, again, alluding to his uh, opening remarks, um, Australia doesn't like being pushed around in 360 degrees. uh, And that includes its ally when it uh, maybe oversteps at times. But um, I think there's a recognition that Australia can't do it alone. And the best way in which it can balance against a hostile power uh, that really wants to fundamentally challenge even the the, the basic system of sovereign equality uh, in, in a in a fundamental way and challenge the, the territorial status quo to the extent of threatening force against a uh, uh, a neighboring uh, country of 25 uh, 24 million people across the taiwan uh, strait straight. it isn't the same comparison but I, what I've put in the in the book i think china uh, China sometimes operates as as an anti-United States. There is that vein of of sentiment that runs through Australian um, foreign policy uh, and at times I think that that has it's given China a kind of uh, vehicle-like status in the in the debate um which it wouldn't have had uh, otherwise. That's not unique to Australia but I think it is a very marked feature of the debate and it's only really familiar to people who spend time here. Um on, on the second question about bipartisanship uh i think on the fundamentals it still holds i think it was pushed to, ex- to its straining point at the last election where i think there was clearly a, a sense in which uh defence and security policy were being used for electioneering purposes by the uh, the, the previous uh, government um there is an ongoing debate about um uh the the, the value of bipartisanship I think bipartisanship, certainly appealing to my status as someone who's been out of sync out of Australia for the last three years, you can see the value of presenting a common voice in the region and not not appearing too divided. Um, but there's a job of persuading to be done in any democracy, and those debates need to be had and had out loud. One of the reasons I took this on with some trepidation is because the debate, as I'm sure you know, it's a it's a very live one. Uh, and uh you can paint to target on your back by taking any position on 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 china and australia, and I think it sometimes it's 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 there's a rough and tumble uh and it's very introverted and it's very personalized sometimes as well. I think that needs to evolve um to the extent that bipartisanship stays out of those waters uh it's a good thing um, final question peter from dfat uh I think that china's ideological Stance uh, has always been there. Um, it just wasn't as as apparent. China was selling itself as a as a as a pragmatic alternative. But I think um, uh, ideology is 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 certainly uh, there. Not in the sense that China wants to uh, revert to the nineteen sixties of supporting revolutionary movements or expecting countries to uh, f- adopt Marxist principles, but rather adopt authoritarian modes of government that they see as, as 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 being in their interest we shouldn't underestimate the appeal of that or the rejection of of uh what's seen as you know western uh um you know a kind of pushing western democratic uh model one of the constant refrains one hears in, in from southeast Asia is please don't push the autocracy versus democracy model um i understand the basis for that but i think. Uh, it does come down to a difference in systems, and uh, you're probably right to to uh, point to the the tension within that that I think Australia um, however much it wants to be part of the region, uh, I think should not shrink from from uh, being confident enough to to be different. Uh, and part of that difference is uh, not um, not pulling back from your own values. That's rather different from pushing them on others. Uh, I think
0: that's the balance that Australia has to, that Canberra has to find. Thank you, Ewan. I, I'm told we have a couple of minutes more if, if we want to take one or two last questions. So um, I know there are refreshments outside. Um, so the I'll start with the question at the back corner of the room, which is going to be um, a long walk for the microphone, but I'm sure we can wait for that. And then I'll take uh, your question. You, you were waiting patiently earlier. So uh, we'll just. And please both introduce yourselves if you can.
5: Hi, uh, thank you. My name is Lauren Song. I am a China specialist at C4ADS, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Um, So I would like to ask about what lessons Australia has learned from um, its... Experience with Chinese investment, uh, cause you touched upon investment earlier in particular, in particular, the case of Darwin, because, uh, what we're noticing in our research, uh, in looking at Australia's relationship with the Pacific is that obviously there are grave concerns about, uh, Chinese investment into the region and the possibility that these will become dual-use facilities. So what has Australia learnt? And in that process, what are the recommendations that Australia might have for its neighbours and other like-minded partners? Thank you.
1: Thanks. And very last question. Um, thank you very much. Uh, David, Uren ran from uh, ASPE. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the um, CPTPP, which seems to be um, something that... Uh, a vehicle that China is using really to push uh, for a reassertion of economic primacy in the region. Um, Australia, it was completely implausible that Ch- Australia would assent to, um, China's application to uh, join the CPTPP while it was under the coercion, um, that it was. Um, do you think that was a factor in, in the change in the uh, coercion towards Australia? And, you know, I guess more importantly, do you think that, um, it would in some ways be in Australia's benefit if, um, and, and indeed the more, the region's benefit more broadly to have China in a CPTPP? Or do you think, um, you know does, does, does would that in some way strengthen a, a sense of of rules of the road in trade which is something that defense minister richard miles has uh, has referred to
3: I, i'm tempted to throw some of these questions back to rory who knows uh, no doubt a, a lot more about um the uh, the the australian policy position i'll have a go if you want to say something please chip in i'm moderating you're you're on, you're on the hot seat here you it's it, your book it was worth a try um so, uh, thanks, Laura, for the the question on um, uh, investment and particularly on on Darwin. I, I do mention the Darwin episode in in my in my book. I think it was important because when it happened, and it was the first real uh, economic decision that f- flashed on Washington's radar, uh, because Obama famously said he read about it on the pages of the New York Times. Uh, which is not a desired way to to learn about it from from your uh, close ally. It was the Darwin newspaper, but anyways. (laughs) Um, That was probably dealing with crocodiles at the time. Uh, But I I mean, I think it was, um, uh, there was a counter debate uh, that was played out publicly uh, and in parliamentary testimony that whether just what an extent of of security uh, risk it it posed, uh, whether... um, you know having uh, a chinese port um up there really would have interfered with with in, in an operational sense or posed a, a credible espionage threat when you could say that there were other ways in which china could have collected that rather than taking the very attention grabbing uh decision to um to uh, acquire a a port sort of under the nose of um of the federal government by dealing with the state government I think the big lesson it, uh, I allude to in the book was that it, it pointed out the risk Australia bears as a federal system of the states and territories having such significant uh, autonomy in the way that they are able to exercise their economic policy. And eventually there was federal legislation brought in to um, draw limits to that. Uh, and we've seen that also play out in in Australia, Australia, in, um, Victoria's Belt and Road Memorandum uh later on um the darwin uh port decision hasn't been quashed despite expectation that it 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 would so it lives on we might say that's another test for the for the current government what its element what its uh appetite is for for risk but i think it's now some time ago so we're talking about 2015 uh, the port development hasn't developed into uh, you know, anything particularly significant. I think it was more the symbolism around, uh, uh, around the decision, uh, and drawing that very obvious divide between, um, being seen as an investment opportunity, um, but also making a very kind of clear propaganda goal under the nose of Canberra at a time when, uh, you know, Washington was, uh, Focused on the on the highly symbolic deployment of the Marines up into into the uh, northern territory, um, it may flash up again. The northern bases are also going to be significantly enhanced uh, as part of the defence st- strategic uh, uh, review. But I, 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 I'll refrain from making a a, 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 a harder conclusion uh, around it than than that. Um, David on the uh, CPTPP. Um, I think we live in an era in a in an era now where geopolitics can't be separated from economics, and I don't just mean that in the way that China acts. I think it's also on us as well, uh, and I think the CPTPP um, has to be acknowledged that it, it has a geopolitical element to it. And um, although I think the maybe the easier answer would be to say that China doesn't meet the qualification standards for the CPTPP. I think the honest answer is, well, maybe Vietnam might not have done either, had there not been an allowance for the fact that Vietnam was seen as a preferred uh, partner, and there was utility in having like-minded countries, particularly on their perceptions towards uh, China, in a an economic grouping that didn't have China in it. Um, and I think that geopolitical geopolitical reality uh, will continue, whatever the regulatory. Uh, accuracy of the argument that China doesn't meet the, the, the quality bar of the uh, CPTP, which I expect will be the way that the government will continue to argue it.
0: Look, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, Yuan for your time and attention. In a moment, I'll invite my colleague, uh, Dr. Bull, to close proceedings, but I just want to make one closing point uh, myself, and that is, uh, from my perspective, I note in your book you have a very a very wry line where you point out there are those in the Australian elites who've become quite good at telling China's story well, you've told Australia's story well, so I really commend you on that.
5: Thanks very much, Rory. Um, I'm afraid we are up against time, which is a real shame because I think with uh, the conversation um, of this calibre and its importance, uh, we could probably go on all evening. Um, and before we finish up and move out, just a, a thank you uh, to Ewan for joining us here today. Uh, to Rory for so expertly moderating, to Richard for his uh, insightful uh, commentary and remarks, uh, to the audience uh, for joining us and sharing this event with us and and for your very engaging and thought-provoking questions, which, of course, is what really brings an event like this to life. And finally, to my fantastic team, our fantastic team at the NSC for for enabling this event to take place. A lot of hard work goes on behind the scenes, so you guys rock. Thank you.